failure. We're going to be talking about failure today. <laughs> Isn't that going to be encouraging? Failure. No one wants to fail, but we have all failed at one time or another, haven't we? Um, you know, you, you've seen me and heard me before at that keyboard playing, maybe a little bit today too, but playing, starting a song off the wrong way, and then I, I just can't, I, I can picture Mark as he would turn and look at me and go, what are you doing? Or if I'm starting off on a different key, because I transposed and hit the button, transposed, and it wasn't supposed to be on that song, and I see, I see Ron and Dale over here looking at me and just laughing. But there's moments when we have failure. Maybe, maybe you were 16 and uh, tried to pass a driving test uh, way back when. You remember that? Um, it, when I was on the driver's license you hoped to get, and the other was on the curb you ran into, <laughs> and you failed. Um, I can remember my driving test as well as uh, the written one. I barely passed both of those. And now you, you understand <laughs> the reason maybe why if you ride with me, maybe you go, oh, that explains a lot. Um, but maybe you failed to get the, the coveted job you applied for. Maybe you failed to sink that free throw uh, that your team needed to win that all-important basketball game. Worse still, maybe you failed to maintain a good testimony at work or in the neighborhood. You said what you shouldn't have said, or maybe you, you did what you shouldn't have done. And then as a result, an unbeliever remarked, and you call yourself a Christian? That, that phrase just hits us right between the eyes. But there's probably been some failures you've experienced, you've gone through, and maybe you're running through your mind right now going, wow, I wish that didn't happen. There are some magnificent failures that have happened in Scripture as well. If you look in the Bible, you read about it a lot. For instance, Moses was one person. Uh, he, he, he struck the rock instead of speaking to it as, as God uh, told him to do so the water would come forth. He was a reluctant leader. He was also often angry and frustrated to the point of quitting. And he also lacked self-confidence as well. Uh, but but he's called a faithful servant. He's compared to Christ in Hebrews chapter 3. And he's called the best leader Israel ever had. So less than ideal, but a different kind of perfect. David, another person in scripture, anointed king while still a boy, uh, killed a lion and a bear and a giant by 12 years old. Tyson, have you done any of that yet? Okay, just wondered. He, he, he's written many psalms and rescued the Ark of the Covenant from, from the Philistines by his late 20s. And, uh, and then, uh, then came the failure, of course, an affair with Bathsheba. And then, of course, the cover-up of having Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed in that battle. And then David taking Bathsheba as his wife. Steve Deneff, the author of Fault Lines, that we've been kind of following along here and uh, taking this series of Fault Lines the, uh, these uh, Sundays and the Sundays to come, he says in his book about failure, he says, failure is always hard on us, but when it has a moral component, it is crippling. So failure is, we can probably get through failure, but when there's a moral component to it, it disables us. We are crippled. Um, with that failure. But again, uh, David genuinely repented and he became a model of a good king. So, you know, far from innocent, far from innocent, but a different kind of perfect. 
and then Peter, which we're going to land at uh, today. Peter, he dropped everything to follow Jesus, right? Uh, he, but he failed to calculate the cost. He had, the, he had his strong moments. He was, he was strong in that moment and that, that time, but he was unprepared for what came next. He was always the guy who would sign up for what it was, but then he forgot to read the small print. <laughs> you, you remember in Matthew chapter 14 about uh, disciples out on the boat, waves are going, the storm came, and here comes Jesus walking on the water. And Peter's like, if it's you, tell me, I'm coming out there. And it's me. All right. And he comes on out, and he's walking on water. But then his eyes get off of Jesus and on the waves and everything else, and he starts to sink. So strong moments, uh, some, a little bit of failure coming on. And then also, too, in Matthew 16, um, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter responds, well, you are the son of the living God. Everyone you know, should know that. And, and then, then a little bit later, Jesus says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, 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 not you. Not you, Jesus. You can't do that. And then, then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Strong moment. Then all of a sudden, whoops, he failed again. And of course, then the, the, the big one where uh, Peter said, you know, wherever you go, Jesus, I'll go. I won't leave you. I'll be with you right there all the way. And, and Jesus says, you know what? <laughs> You're going to deny me three times. And Peter did. The best and worst moments for Peter were often really close together. <laughs> He'd be great, and all of a sudden, whoops, and don't. maybe you can, you can uh, uh, say, yeah, that's, that's, that's me. I, I identify with that. Well, we've been there in the place of failure a number of times. I've been there number of times. And Peter certainly was in failure, but he didn't stay there. He didn't stay there. By God's grace, he rebounded, and so can we. If you've gone through failure, maybe you're in it right now. You're thinking, I should have handled that conversation with my, my relatives a little bit better about wearing masks and we were gathering, or I should have handled this other thing a little bit better during these COVID-19 days. There's a lot of things we can go back and go, up. Oh, I wish I could have done that. I, I failed there. But we can rebound from the failures that have happened in our lives. So let's see what we can learn as we take a look at Peter's path of failure and then restoration. And then also look at four things we can, we can really learn from him about all of this. So first of all, Peter's path uh, to failure. We see here in Mark chapter 14 and Luke 22 about the account of uh, Peter, you know, of course, Jesus predicting all his disciples that they would all fall away. And, and Peter's like, no, 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 not me. I'll, I'll stay with you. We see here a self-confidence that happens in Peter's life. And that's part of this, this path of failure, self-confidence that happens. And Jesus, again, he's predicting that all his disciples would fall away from him in the most critical hour in Mark chapter 14, verse 27. But Peter was too proud to accept this prediction. He boasted that even if the others deserted Jesus, he would not. And he claimed he was ready to follow Jesus to prison and even to death, as uh, you can read in Luke 22, verse 33. You know, it is extremely risky to put our confidence in ourselves instead of in the Lord. <laughs> when we put our confidence in self, what we can do, then we're getting into trouble here. We need to be confident in what God can do through us. Proverbs 16 
verse 18 warns pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. We need to be on guard. You know, sometimes a highly ranked sports team tastes defeat at the hands of a team that is the lowest ranked in the division. The defeat is usually attributed to the superior team's overconfidence. They, they, they think they're much better than this other team. It won't take much to defeat them. Some of you might remember the NCAA men's basketball tournament a couple of years ago in 2018 when a team uh, from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC, was ranked number 16 in their little uh, um, bracket, four brackets in the NCAA men's tournament, and each one has a number one, each one has a number 16. So number one plays the number 16, the lowest in that bracket there. And the number one team, Virginia, was getting ready to do this, but they <laughs> they were not prepared. And it was the first time, I think, uh, I think the number one teams were 131 and zero. They won 131 games until 2018 when UMBC beat Virginia. And they didn't just barely beat them. They pummeled them by 20 points. So the number one team was a little more overconfident than what they thought. And uh, they took for granted what they could do against this number 16 team. In the same way, if our confidence is in ourselves instead of the Lord, we can expect to tumble badly in the Christian life. Paul counseled us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. <laughs> so if we think we're on top of things, all that, I mean, don't be paranoid, but just have humility, realizing why or how did you get there? Who got you there? Self-confidence was part of Peter's failure. Another path on uh, uh, the path to failure for Peter was slothfulness. Slothfulness. Matthew 26 talks a little bit about this. Now, I looked up what sloth is described as not the animal only, but sloth is a translation of a Latin term that means without care. <laughs> without care. And that pretty much describes slothfulness Without care, you just kind of apathetic about things. Don't really care if you do this or do that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus urged Peter and James and John to stay at a certain point and keep watch with me, he said. And uh, the disciples, though, they fell asleep. In Matthew 26, verse 40. In addressing Peter, he said, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Verse 41. And again, he went away to pray, but when he returned, he found the three disciples asleep. It has been said, the devil is never too busy to rock the cradle of a slumbering saint. He would love for each of you to stay very sleepy and not awake to what the Holy Spirit has for you. The devil is never too busy to rock the cradle of a slumbering saint. Peter's slothfulness had given the devil an opportunity to cause Peter's downfall, and it was all uh, the foothold the devil needed to be able to get in there. Slothfulness. And then, continuing on this path to failure, disloyalty comes up. In the same, uh, same chapter of Matthew, Matthew 26, verses 56 and 58, we see this happening. Um, you know, where was Peter when soldiers led Jesus away to be crucified? <laughs> where was Peter? He was nowhere to be found. Didn't Peter pledge loyalty to Jesus? Wherever you go, Jesus, I'll be there. I won't leave you. Doesn't matter what happens. I'm there with you. 
But Peter failed to follow Jesus when he was arrested. He deserted him and followed at a distance, as we see there in Matthew 26. Situations arise when we should show true loyalty to Jesus, but the fear of man proves to be a snare, as Proverbs 29, verse 25 tells us. We cave into fear as Peter did, and our failure to stand for Jesus is glaring. I can attest to that. It happened to me as a youth pastor. Um, my mom's uh, really good friend passed away, and uh, uh, at that time she lived in Depot Bay. He did too, and and uh, he wanted uh, his wishes were to have his ashes scattered across in the, uh, in the ocean. There, I may have shared the story with you before, but uh, so she was able to get uh, uh, someone uh, with a boat and take us on out there, and uh, his family and my mom and I and. We were out there, and uh, she had the ashes ready to do to, to toss, you know, spread across the ocean there. And she turned to me and she said, "Jim, do you want to say anything?" Knowing that I was a youth pastor, knowing that I had a Christian faith, knowing that I went to church, knowing that I knew Jesus as my Savior, knowing that I had a relationship with Him, do you want to say anything before we do this? And I thought, and I was thinking, I wasn't prepared. I don't know what to do. Um, and I looked at her, and I said, no. And boy, I, I look back on that, and I still go, I, I cringe when I think of it. Because there was his family there. I don't believe we're believers. I, I don't think they knew anything about Jesus. Well, they did, but they didn't have a relationship. I don't think they had a relationship with him. And there was the opportunity. They couldn't go anywhere. I was on a boat, <laughs> I could, could have shared and stood up for Jesus at that moment, and I didn't. And so I can identify with what uh, Peter is going through here, and uh, it, it, it can be, that kind of thing can be glaring where we don't stand up, we're not loyal to Jesus, we don't stand up for him and say something. And, uh, and so ever since then, I've been trying to make sure I say something for Jesus when I have that opportunity. Then there's the other path to, uh, the continual path to failure is the denial. Peter's greatest failure occurred in the high priest courtyard. It was you know, a chilly night, and, and, uh, and probably that chill got into Peter's heart as well, too. And while he warmed himself at a fire, he was asked three times whether he was one of Jesus' followers. And each time, Peter denied that he was. The question that comes to us, and as we hear this and recall that story of Peter's denial of Jesus, do we deny Jesus to avoid embarrassment or maybe to gain the possibility of a job promotion or maybe to avoid the loss of friends? Do we deny Jesus? And if we do, we feel badly just as Peter did. We think we should have, we should have said something. We, we, we should have let them know that I, I, I know about Jesus and I'm a follower. You know, most of the time they do know. <laughs> They're just wondering if what you do and say are the same thing. And we need to be ready to give an answer, right? All this to say is that you know, Peter had failed in many ways as we see this progression. Maybe you know some of that failure in your life as well. And if you do, Steve Deneff, author of Fault Lines, says he would tell you that failure is a fault line. Failure is a fault line. Uh, where we feel torn in two directions. We, we, we would want to deny that failure and maybe run and save face, or we pull, get pulled in another direction where we, we admit it 
and give into it and throw everything away because everyone's going to know everything then. We failed. And the question that usually comes to our mind is why? Why this failure? Why did this happen? See, because to explain the failure helps us be on top of it. If we can understand it, then we can go, oh, well, that's why. And I feel more powerful in control about this now. If we know why we got rejected or why we got let go or don't feel quite as, we, we then don't feel quite as helpless. We, we feel a little more in control. Blaming someone else is even better, right? And that, that question why is the, actually the wrong question that should be asked. What should be asked in that situation is this. Is grace enough? When we fail, when we fall flat on our face, that's the question we should be asking. Is grace enough? Our failures will never help us until we can answer that question with yes. Until we can do that, we're going to have a difficult time with our failures. So, so we run away from grace. We run away from grace. We give excuses for our failures. And we don't admit them, uh, whatever it is. And when we fail, we run away from grace in two ways. One way is we, don't, we, we, we think we don't need grace. <laughs> we don't need grace. We give excuses or we blame others. It wasn't my fault that this happened. We haven't gained strength over the sin. We haven't improved our character. We haven't acquired more virtue or become part of something bigger than our lives because we cannot live with grace and so we prefer innocence over grace. I want to be innocent in this failure. So I want to explain it away. But then we need to realize that grace is there for us. And that's what we need to be going for. Stephen S. says, when we fail, we require grace. Grace from God, from each other, from the body of Christ, even from the world. If we want to live without needing grace... We, what we want to do is we want to live without needing grace. We want to be loved, admired, respected, and appreciated, but we do not want to feel graced <laughs> because grace reinforces the idea that we are flawed. <laughs> Something wrong happened and we need grace. Grace can give us that different kind of perfect, that different kind of those perfectionists that are here today and listening online. You can have a different kind of perfect through grace. Another way we run away from grace is that we act like we deserve grace. <laughs> we are trying to atone for something we did in our past because if we can pay it back, we will feel like we deserve the grace we're getting today. Failure is that fault line that makes us better or worse, but we can't get better without grace. And the question we need to be asking is, is grace enough? Is grace enough? When Peter denied Jesus, he was in the middle of a fault line, Luke 22. He would be defined by this denial or by what came next. And as you read in John chapter 21, you see what comes next. Stephen F. says, the key to redeeming our failure is how we handle the aftermath. It is essential that we do the right thing after we have done the wrong thing. The trouble is that we are wired to do the wrong thing twice. <laughs> we like to cover it up, to avoid it, 
to minimize it because we want to protect our fragile egos at a time when they are most vulnerable. That is so true. The human nature wants to, I mean, isn't this the this scene in the moment when a little child is asked, who broke this? <laughs> and what do they do? They want to cover it up, right? They don't want to admit it. How do we handle the aftermath of failure in our lives? How do we handle that? Watch here how Peter deals with the aftermath. Just like Peter, we don't have to give in to our failures. We can rebound from them. And so let's look at Peter's path to restoration here. First, there's regret. If you look in John uh, chapter 21, we see all this unfolding. There's regret. When a rooster crowed, Peter remembered Jesus' prediction that Peter would deny him three times. And so he's, he's filled with conviction. He felt the courtyard. He, he left the courtyard and he was filled with grief and he was, he, he was weeping. There was regret in his heart. If we regret a failure, we are likely to seek forgiveness and be determined not to repeat it. If there is regret going on, then that leads us down the right path of restoration. Regret is one of the steps to restoration. Then there's humility. Following Jesus' resurrection, he met with his disciples. And you see this in John chapter 21. He met with his disciples at the Sea of Galilee. And there he found them fishing unsuccessfully. And so he commanded them to cast their net on the right side of their boat. They obeyed and immediately caught more fish than they could handle. And then it clicked. <laughs> Deja vu. Wait, we, we've been here before. We've seen this. We know about this. And, and that's when Peter recognized Jesus and jumped into the water. And soon the disciples were gathered around a fire where Jesus treated them to grilled fish and bread. As we see all through uh, in verses 9 through 14 of John 21. And after breakfast, Jesus asked Peter three times whether he loved him. And Peter had previously denied the Lord three times at a fire in the courtyard of the high priest. Now, at a seaside fire, he confessed three times that he loved Jesus. His confession was both truthful and humble. There was no boasting on his part. Upon hearing Peter's humble confession of love, Jesus commissioned him to feed his lambs and take care of his sheep. Stephen F. says, we can be sorry without actually loving the person we hurt, but we will never love them without being sorry that we hurt them. So this was the thing Jesus wanted to know. Do you love me? And Stephen F. says, there is no question more fundamental than this. Until it is answered from the heart, there is no going forward because love and not penance is the way to be perfect. Penance only evens the score, but love accepts what we cannot pay back and moves us with our blemishes and scars toward a different kind of perfect. Again, perfection is out there. You're not going to be perfect, but it will be a different kind of perfect through grace. Loving Jesus is an essential step in rebounding from failure, but the test of love for Jesus consists of our obedience to him which is the next step in Peter's path to restoration, obedience. You know, Peter waited in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1. We see this. He waited in Jerusalem for the Spirit in response to Jesus' command to do so. And uh, the Holy Spirit came upon, upon him. If we want to serve the Lord joyfully and faithfully, we must obey him. <laughs> what he has for us. 
And then the next step in this restoration is empowerment. Peter received the Holy Spirit as well as the others, and they went and then they spread the word, uh, uh, the good news. So restored to fellowship with the Lord and to a life of obedience to him, Peter received power from the Holy Spirit, and he began to proclaim the gospel boldly, as we read in Acts. And the Spirit also used Peter to write two inspired epistles, First and Second Peter, of course. And if you haven't read those lately, you should read them again. Good, good instructions. And often when we fail in some way, we fall flat on our backs. It is then that we can look up flat on our backs and depend upon the Lord to lift us up. We are never so far down that we cannot cause us, that he cannot cause us to rebound completely. So there are four things we can learn here from Peter about, uh, about failure and what we should do. What are our steps? What can we do about this? You can find it in what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. The first thing that we, we uh, need to consider and we can learn from Peter is to own up to your failure. <laughs> own up to it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 says, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. We are all wired, just kind of like Peter, we are all wired to overestimate our loyalty and underestimate our failure. <laughs> we, you, oh, yeah, Jesus, I'll be with you. I'll be, well, it wasn't that bad. I, I didn't do as bad as that person there. We are, we are wired to overestimate our loyalty and underestimate our failure. If we deny it, if we minimize it, if we blame it on someone else, we are running away from grace. Steve Neff, I love how he describes grace. And I think Maddie and any other college student would get this too. Grace is like financial aid. The more assets you claim at the beginning, the less of it you get in the end. <laughs> Grace is like financial aid. The more assets you claim at the beginning, the less of it you get in the end. If you build yourself up as anything but poor, you are talking yourself out of grace. Accept your humble status, <laughs> the consequences of your sin, and the limitations that come with them. Yes, you had failure. Whoops. Okay. Move from here through grace. Grace abundantly in your life. No excuses. Own up to your failure. A second thing we can learn here from Peter is to stay in the body. Stay in the body. When we fail, we are tempted to withdraw from community because of shame masquerading as justice. I like how Steve Deneff puts that. Shame masquerading as justice. I've seen too many people in the church, when they failed, when they've fallen into sin, then they just leave the church. It's like, where are you going? This is the place you need to be. And this should be the place for people to be, especially if we are wanting to be a community that, that is a safe place, one of our core values of the church that we have placed, that we have in place here. We value providing a safe place that promotes hope and healing for all. That's one of our core values. And so if that's something we are uh, working towards and trying to have happen here at, at Happy Valley, then people should come back and go, 
yeah, this is the place I need to come to. I've messed up. I need this place. I need these people. I need Jesus in this. And so we can, we can point them to him. You must be healed in the body you've offended. You can't get healing somewhere else. You've offended and you move on. There's not going to be total healing because you need to come back and get healing from where you've offended. Stay in the body. A third thing we can remember from Peter, entrust yourself to God. Entrust yourself to God. First Peter 5, 7, a lot of you have it memorized. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast your cares. But anxiety, that word anxiety is described as to be torn in two directions. <laughs> you probably know that if you've been anxious before, or have anxiety torn into two directions. It's a great description. There's conflicting interests. Do you hide uh, in the situation when, when, when you messed up? Or do you, do you quit? Do you give up? There's, there's conflicting interests going on. You're torn between, in two directions. Bring these things to God and leave your healing and leave the timeline up to him. That's a big thing. We come to him on healing. Okay, I know God can heal. This would be great. But you know what? <laughs> Lord, I need it about right now. We leave that timeline up to him. He will bring it. He cares for you. Remember that your, your real problem isn't the failure, but what comes next. It's, it's your presumption. It's your, your impatience. It's your independent and contrary spirit. That's what you need to guard against. Not, not just the failure, but what comes after that. If there's a humble spirit about it, <laughs> then you're on the right track. Entrust yourself to God. And then finally, Peter tells us in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, discipline yourself. Discipline yourself. In verse 8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls, along, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stephen F. says the goal of recovery is not to make you a more honest sinner, <laughs> but to make you a more transparent saint who having learned from your failures is ready to move past them. Your sins are not helping you if you keep committing them. The only sins that help you are the ones you get over, not the ones you keep confessing. So disciplining yourself in the Christian walk, not going back, being self-controlled, being alert because the devil's going to trip you up. He's going to have you go back to those things again, those sins that you've been tripped up on before. But we need to learn, and we need to not be just an honest sinner, but we need to be a transparent saint. We need to be moving forward. Discipline yourself to resist those things that caused you to fail in the first place. And then in verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So stand firm. Be disciplined. I'm going to share a story here in closing, what Steve, uh, Steve Neff wrote in his book about his childhood. It's a great story that helps us understand a little bit more about this grace in our lives and how, how through that grace we can have a different kind of perfect. He says, when I was a child, my parents would often entertain their friends on a Sunday afternoon, and sometimes those conversations require that the children be absent from the room. I never knew what my parents were talking about, but I knew I wasn't supposed to bother them when my mother would hand me and my two sisters a bag of old crayons and a few sheets of paper and tell us to draw them a picture. 
As I remember, we, we, we would sit down at the kitchen table and start working on our masterpieces, when suddenly, as though possessed by a gremlin, my sister would snatch a crayon and make a random mark on my sheet of paper. I couldn't believe it. There I was, halfway done with a masterpiece that would make Michelangelo jealous, and my sister, she must have been envious of my work, decided to wreck it. I screamed bloody murder, but just, uh, but she just giggled like her picture was better than mine, so I decided to appeal. Risking trouble, I, barge, I would barge into my parents' meeting with picture in hand, sobbing while I showed them the damage. I was sure my dad would dismiss himself and go settle the score, but instead, he studied my drawing, looked at the mark my sister had made, and said, make it a tree. I said, what? And he said, she used a brown crayon so you can make it into a tree. I couldn't believe it. I didn't barge into this meeting for a lesson in art. I came to get justice. I was telling, he was telling me to make the damage into part of my picture, but I wanted him to go get my sister and do a little damage of his own. But I don't want that mark in there, I said. And he just smiled. Well, there it is. Now, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> I suggest you make it a tree. So I went back to the kitchen and made my little tree. But I waited for an opportune time to get a little vengeance of my own. And when my sister wasn't looking, I snatched a crayon and I put a nasty mark on her picture. Now it was her turn. She jumped up and ran into my parents' meeting, sobbing that I had just ruined her picture, and my dad did the same thing. He studied it and he said, Make it a son. He used a yellow crayon, and he put it high on the page. You need a sun anyway, so make it a sun. Back and forth we went from damage to redemption until little by little we had finished our drawings. And at the end of the day, we brought our pictures to our parents, and do you know what they did? They both smiled and said, These are beautiful. They're just perfect. And he says, even if our failures form new limitations, and even if they cannot be expunged from our past, God can make them into something that is larger and more beautiful than the mark that we or others have, have made on our lives. God himself can restore us with strength and humility, with quietness and confidence in the very place where we have once failed. Yes, it takes time. And we will have to submit to the process, but God is faithful and he will do it. And regarding this interaction with, with Peter on that beach and Jesus, and maybe, his, maybe Jesus' interaction with each one of us in our moments of failure and restoration. Jesus basically said, in essence, I know you failed, and maybe you failed in the worst possible way, but your failure can be the beginning of a different kind of perfect. You will always have a past. We will always have that. Your story will be less than ideal, but God can use your failure and make it part of something that is larger, more interesting, and more human than something merely flawless. If we answer the question, is grace enough? With a yes. <laughs> yes, grace is enough in your failures. I'm going to have Becky and Maddie come on up. They're going to lead us in one more song.
And this next song reminds us of the beautiful Savior we have and what he can do for us. And so as we sing this song together, may we lift our praises to Jesus, whose love for us is abundant. And I trust you sense his love for you right now. <laughs>